When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes disability advocate Anthony Tussler to discuss the great Doc Palmas. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Anthony Tussler of AboutDisability.com, and we're going to be discussing Doc Pomus, based on the book Lonely Avenue, The Unlikely Life and Times of Doc Pomus by Alex Halberstadt, the book Always Magic in the Air, The Bomp and Brilliance of the Brill Building Era by Ken Emerson, and the movie, a.k.a. Doc Pomus, directed by William Hector and Peter Miller. Anthony, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And you want to tell people how we hooked up? Well, I listened to, uh, since the pandemic, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, and uh, yours is one of the ones that has really helped me understand popular music better. I mean, I was pretty clueless about uh, house music, for instance. And then uh, you did a, a podcast on Chick Webb, Disabled Band Leader, and it really... It made me think, you know, we Nate and I really need to talk about Doc Pomus, who had a disability and who's been a disability hero of mine for a while. I've done a lot of study of disabled artists, singers and songwriters, but at the top of the stack is Doc Pomus. So I gave you, dropped you a note and you said, yes. So here we are. Yeah, I've been trying to do a Doc Pomus episode uh, forever and had uh, had just hadn't hooked it up. And He's, you know, at the top of my stack of musical heroes, and um, and I and I thought that, you know, your understanding of the disability would would definitely enhance the experience. So let's let's get right into it. For those who don't know, Doc Palmas is unquestionably one of the great songwriters of the rock and roll era. He, with his port, part, partner Mort Schumann, uh, one year they had 13 top 10 hits in one single year. They wrote hits for Elvis Presley, like Little Sister, Marie's the Name, Surrender, Suspicion. They wrote hits for the Drifters, like Save the Last Dance for Me, This Magic Moment, Sweets for My Sweet, and uh, songs and, and dozens of other hits for other performers. And as well, Doc had a second career partnering with other songwriters uh, like Dr. John and Willie DeVille. And... Um, uh, inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and the first white man to be inducted into the Rhythm and Blues Hall of Fame. So when we're talking Doc Palmas, I mean, this is the major leagues and and uh, just an absolute, an absolute musical king. And one of the few 
and I, I'd say one of the few, but one of the few good guys that we're going to be talking about. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> we are talking rock and roll music industry. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe part of that was a disability. I noticed the same thing about Chick Webb that I, I guess they just had enough troubles with their physical, um, embodiment that they didn't need to get into extra trouble but that's not you know that's not necessarily a given but however it turned out doc palmas um really made a life worth discussing and so i'm, I'm really happy to have you here anthony today to discuss it and, and let's just dive into into the background this doc was born in 1925 uh williamsburg brooklyn he was the child of morris and millie and and this kind of reminds me of Jerry Wexler and other uh, other uh, biographies we've talked about on this series from the same era. In that his father Morris was, for lack of a better word, an an embittered failure. Uh, Morris was a well-educated man. He was a trained veterinarian and a trained lawyer. He was an active aspiring politician. Ran for office many many times. Apparently only ever won once. And. You know, not many uh, Jewish people in Williamsburg at the time had pets, so there was no business for vets. And <laughs> and for whatever reason, he didn't click as a lawyer either. So it, it fell on Doc's father, Doc's mother, Millie, to uh, be the provider of the family. And she uh, got involved in charitable work and ultimately uh, had a very successful career helping people out. But um, anything you want to add about the, the, the background before we get into the polio? Uh, no, I think that's it. Um, yeah. And then, and you know, Doc was uh, a super active kid. And if you look at pictures of him as a baby, even uh, post-polio, I mean, he is a big, beefy, strong kid. And he grew up to be a very strong man. But when he was six years old, polio was going around in the city, and his parents wanted to do everything they could to protect him. So they sent him to Connecticut to a summer camp. And the first morning in the summer camp, he wakes up and can't move his legs. Um, this was an unfortunately common occurrence in, in this era. FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president himself, was struck, although as an adult, by it. Most of the paralysis happened to kids. And it was similar to you know what we've seen with COVID. A lot of people had very mild cases, but a small minority of people had these devastating uh, side effects. And... This was in an era when people were not as considerate of the disabled as they are now. Not that we've achieved any kind of perfection, but I mean, talk a little bit about how Doc was treated as a young paralytic. Well, I think that it is interesting that it happened when it did, and it also that FDR uh, had polio. So, uh, in many ways, uh, doctors treated uh, kids with with polio pretty obnoxiously, and certainly Doc reflects that. But also, having to be part of a uh, an epidemic, there Doc had a lot of well, Jerome at the time. I mean, he didn't change his name till later. Um, had a lot of people that he knew, other kids who had polio. And I think that's part of what made him who he was, that he had a crowd. He had I mean, a gang in a sense. Uh, he spent a couple of years in the hospital. And even though he was treated rough, it sounded a little bit Lord of the Flies-ish as they uh, saw how much pain he could take by beating him up. Um, nonetheless, it was also a time where... Uh, you know, there's others around that he could relate to. And I think that was enormously powerful. One of the things that I noticed that I think might maybe slips by is that he spent a couple of weeks in uh, Warm Springs, Georgia, where FDR had founded a center for people with polio, and it was run by disabled people. And FDR loved going there and hanging out with other people with disabilities, with other people with polio. And there's a sense of camaraderie and strength, I think, that comes out of that. Yeah, definitely. And and the 
popularity of FDR in this period cannot be understated. I mean, he was literally seen by millions as the man who was saving America from the Depression, just an absolute hero. They kind of kept the extent of his uh, affliction on the down low. He frequently, you know, you never saw him in wheelchairs, you rarely see him in crutches. They would go to great lengths to make it appear that FDR was walking on his own power. And young Doc would do the same thing. And thanks for catching me on that. His name was Jerome Felder, was his given name. And the reason he took up the name Doc Pomus was he didn't want his mom to see his name on marquees when he was singing in blues clubs. And we'll get to that now. So he's, um, you know, a uh, scribble kid in New York and the immediately drawn to music. They tried to get him piano lessons. That didn't take, but he loved listening to the radio. And when he first heard black music, that was what really lit his fire. Fletcher Henderson and the big bands were some of his favorites. But when he heard Big Joe Turner singing Piney Brown Blues when he was about 15, that was absolutely his pivotal musical experience. Big Joe Turner was his ideal of what a musician should be and what a singer should be. And it turned out um, he modeled himself on that. He had a period of time when he tried to learn playing saxophone and was a so-so saxophone player. But according to Doc, um, his hand was broken by an icy snowball that was thrown by a kid, not necessarily aimed at him. Kids were just throwing snowballs and he was holding his crutches and and one caught him and cracked his his hand. And I do want to read a statement. This is something that Doc wrote in a diary in the the 1980s as an introduction to an unwritten memoir. I think it sums up Doc and his attitude uh, to his disability. All right, this is Doc. I was never one of those happy cripples who stumbled around smiling and shiny-eyed, trying to get the world to cluck its tongue and shake its head sadly in my direction. They'd never look at me and say, what a wonderful, courageous fellow. I was always too effing mad and didn't have a chip, but a great big log on my shoulder, daring the world to get in my way or mess with me. I walked slow and straight and never swung my legs fast and awkwardly like the rest of the gimps who got around with braces and crutches. (laughs) (laughs) My main thing was to act and look cool, angry and cool and sharp. I talked to the hip talk of the jazz man and dressed like Bed-Stuy in Harlem. I was going to be the first heavyweight boxing champion on crutches, a one-punch knockout killer, or maybe the first major league pitcher on crutches, firing endless unhittable strikes. Or maybe I'd be the first famous band leader waving his baton with one hand and leaning on his crutch with the other. And I was going to make love to the most beautiful, exciting women in the world, and they would all loved me passionately and forever. I was going to be the most extraordinary and talented and virile man that ever lived. Underneath, I was a frightened little kid, afraid that my limited physical equipment was not enough to get me any kind of piece of the action out there. I would end up a street beggar hustling quarters or be just another bed in a cold state institution or live in a welfare hotel sharing a toilet with some diseased junkie or hooker. And, you know, he did virtually all of that both the bad and the good but let's hear our first song before we go uh talking any further and this is a song called alley alley blues that came out on apollo records and this is a variation of a jingle for a clothing store that doc recorded and that jingle ironically became the biggest hit of his recording career this is alley alley blues by doc Palmas. Doc Palmas singing the recorded version of Alley Alley Blues, which is a song that Lieber and Stoller knew him by. This was the song that made his rep. And Anthony, you want to tell the story of how he became a blues singer? Well, first, first of all, I'd like to uh, comment on is uh, this the introduction that you read that he, he oh he absolutely wrote. yeah definitely. Um, because I think that I w- I've been thinking about this some of the time when people see uh, Doc say. I was too effing mad uh, about his disability. It it relates to his disability. And I think that people think that 
outside the disability community think that that might mean I was mad that I had a disability, but I see it as I'm mad because of the way the world treats me because of my disability. And I think that's the key thing, the, the insider versus the outsider perspective. I mean, I've had a disability for 70 years now, similar to docs. I was five years old when I had a spinal cord injury and used braces and crutches. And unlike doc, I sung my, swung my legs wildly, um, but I did want to ultimately be cool. And so I, what I've learned during that time is that my disability is just part of my life. It's what everybody has ups and downs and part of the downs is having a disability, but the real down is how the world treats me. And things have gotten so much better in the 70 years that I've been around, but it's still, as you mentioned, it's still not perfect. So um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I think that explains what Doc was was feeling because he wasn't one for self-pity. You don't really hear him complaining about having to use crutches or be confined to a wheelchair. He was just frustrated when it limited his opportunity or exactly. meant he couldn't go somewhere or couldn't uh or he was afraid it was going to stop him from doing the things he wanted to do, but you know, one listened to his body of work and one, you know, watching the documentary in particular and hearing the way people talk about Doc. This was a man, you know, I mean, Bob Dylan came to Doc in the 80s when he was having writer's block. Can you imagine? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I reread that that section uh, last night and um Doc was really, really nervous because here's the guy who everybody considered ruined the Brill Building, where Doc was so had been so popular until the uh, mid '60s. So yeah, it, it's just amazing, and that John Lennon demanded to be seated next to Doc at a uh, presentation of uh, music writers. I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah, and and Lennon and McCartney were the other half of the team that destroyed uh, the Brill Building. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Of of pop and rock songwriting, you know, where there was, and this goes back way beyond rock and roll. This goes back to Irving Berlin and Cole Porter and everybody. But from the beginning of the music industry, the songwriter was the thing, and that was because sheet music was the product. And once records became the product. There would still be multiple versions of, you know, if there was a hit song, that meant there was a hit song, not a hit recording. And so there would be multiple recording, recorded versions of any hit song. So even up into the late 50s and early 60s in Doc's heyday, most of the pop songs, nobody expected the Drifters to be writing their own song or the Ronettes to be right. writing their own songs. I mean, there right. were people like Buddy Holly or Chuck Berry or Neil Sedaka who did, or Doc Pomus when he was a singer. But that was the exception, not the rule, until Dylan and Lennon and McCartney come along and completely change the game. But let's get back to his, his career. So, right, right, right. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. You wanted me to talk about Pineywood Blues. Yeah, absolutely. And, and how he first found himself on stage. Well, I think that, I mean, um, so Doc, hearing this blues song, a blue shouter, Big Joe Turner, I think that it really opened up a world for him that he wasn't living at the time. You know, that uh, being in Brooklyn, the Jewish uh, immigrant experience, having a disability. One thing I, I do want to mention, a uh, slight diversion here, is that I think that part of Doc's self-confidence came from his mother. And the fact that when he got polio, they moved their apartment to a building, one of the few that had an elevator and only on the second floor. So if the elevator broke, Doc could get down to the ground floor. Not all parents would do that. And I think that he really had a lot of support from his mom. And so I think that really helped with his self-confidence. Nonetheless, he still felt very much an outsider having a disability. 
And so in hearing Pineywood Blues, something about that said, here is a place for you. And so I am just, every time I read about it, every time I hear it, he was at a club, and I forget the name of it right now, but he was, oh, Do George's Tavern in Greenwich Village. That's right. He was 19 years old, didn't have enough money for to buy a beer, even though he was underage. They wouldn't have kicked him out if, in fact, he was uh, willing to... Um, uh, to buy a beer and the owner came up to him or one of the, the managers and said, what are you, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm, I'm a singer. I'm waiting to sing. And the manager of the group, Frankie Newton, actually the leader of the group said, well, come on up. Here he is a 19 year old white kid on crutches in a blues club getting up on stage to sing. I mean, it it completely blows my mind. And so he sang the only song he knew, blues song he knew, which was Pineywood Blues, and people loved it. He had to sing it again, because he only knew that one song. And they invited him back for the next week. I mean, how does that happen? I mean, I think it's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, that guy had a set of balls on him. I mean, no right, fear. Exactly. No fear. And and when they asked him, you know, what he wanted to play, he said blues in any key. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, and then the next week he comes back and he's learned four songs and, you know, pretty soon he's the draw and he's putting his own bands together. And then he finds another circuit that's outside, you know, Greenwich Village is obviously in Manhattan. And pretty soon he's introduced to sort of another world, a circuit of clubs in the outer boroughs that are for blacks only i mean not explicitly but that's who was there right and and that's where he really found his people and really found his connection and it was one of those things you know he'd hobble up onto the stage and people would be like who is this fool you know but once he sang they were all in and 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 blown away just you know this young white kid on crutches who can sing the blues like big joe turner just you know amazing and he turns us into a whole decade kind of a waste i wouldn't say right. a wasted decade because of the way it turns out but if you're his parents um you can see why he changed his name to doc palmas to to have that on the marquee so his mom wouldn't be worried well i think that also doc palmas is a much cooler name than jerome felder feldman <laughs> <Very> so <true. laughs> i think very, it's a combo of both <laughs> well, let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is uh, from his heyday with partner Mort Schumann. This is Sweets for My Sweet by the Drifters. Thomas and Schumann song Sweets for My Sweet by the Drifters, the Drifters 2.0, the Benny King version. Originally, the Drifters were founded by Clyde McFadder, and then uh, the whole band ends up getting replaced. Um, and Benny King is the leader of the second iteration. And when you hear that song, you can hear the heavy Latin influence that Mort Schumann brought to the audience, uh, brought to the music. He was part of a generation of, of Jewish kids that called himself a mambo nick and uh the mambo was enormously popular uh, the dominant dance form in new york city in the late 40s and 50s and and mort schumann was just one of many kids uh who got into into that we've all we've talked about other songwriters like burt burns and other you know built brill building um mainstays like Lieber and Stoller or uh, uh, Burt Bacharach, who are massively influenced by those Latin rhythms. And so, you know, Doc was a little older. His music was out of the blues shouter era, you know, contemporary with, uh, you know, a younger contemporary of Big Joe Turner, but uh, contemporary with people like Wynoni Harris and others. And so this, this several waves of music came along 
by the late 50s and early 60s that Doc wasn't up with, rock and roll being one of them. Latin music, you know, influenced rock and roll being another. And so Mort Schumann, who was much younger, 12 years younger than him, became uh, the perfect partner for him. And before we get to that, though, I do want to mention that uh, his running buddy was Little Jimmy Scott. And if you're not familiar with Little Jimmy Scott, I I highly recommend um, uh, digging him up. He he had a renaissance in the 90s. He was on Sire Records. and, And he had a rare condition that... Basically, Jimmy Scott never went through puberty. And so he sang uh, like a soprano, uh, basically like a castrato, but with incredible emotional power. And when I found out that Doc Pomus and little Jimmy Scott were running buddies who were on this rough, rough circuit in the outer boroughs in New Jersey singing, I mean, buckets of blood, you know, people are getting shot and stabbed at these clubs. Right, right. and, you know, Otis Blackwell and others were, were running buddies. Roy Hamilton, who was a huge influence of Elvis, was in that scene as well. And they were friends. But the idea of Doc and little Jimmy Scott, it just really touches my heart to think of those two kids, you know, making their way through that city and and not just making their way, but making names for themselves and and, you know, building bodies of work and reputations in the music scene uh, just makes me a little verklempt. And, and <laughs> we'll come back to. To Jimmy, but eventually, you know, Doc starts living in hotels and and he's able to get around. He's smoking a little bit of reefer. He's he's dating women. He even supposedly dated a down on her luck Veronica Lake at one point, which right. is pretty. <laughs> pretty well, one thing good. I wanted to mention about his uh, uh, being in the African American community in the uh, in those outer bureaus. I mean, part of it was he was getting laid. Yeah. You know, this as as a disabled person, um, you know, that women are not really attracted to you oftentimes. And so to be in a community where uh, it was treated differently, you know, was really an appeal. Yeah. And he had a passionate love affair with, I think, a cousin of Jimmy Scott's that that he Ida. Yeah, Ada, that that he really loved her and he regretted he was afraid to bring her home because she was black. And, and um, you know, he came to to regret that. But we'll talk more about his love life in a bit. But, you know, he he never hit on records. He never took him that seriously because they didn't pay. He got paid better for gigs. And he was he was playing some pretty, you know, high class gigs. He actually sang with Duke Ellington at one right. point. Um, he you know, had bands together with people like Mickey, the great guitarist, Mickey Baker, great saxophonist, uh, uh, King Curtis. That was Doc Pomus's blues man, um, you know, worked with a woman who was Charlie Parker's manager. But things never quite worked out. Like uh, the woman, Mel Bartholomew, who was the wife of child star Freddie Bartholomew, you know, she makes big promises. She hooks him up with Duke Ellington and Never pays, pays with bounce right. checks, et cetera, et cetera. Finally comes through with a bag of heroin. <laughs> right, Doc, right. Doc fortunately threw it at her, you know, but he blamed her for getting Charlie Parker hooked. Although Parker had been hooked in Kansas City before, but she might have gotten him back into it. So his musical career kind of as a singer, he realized that his prospects were limited, even despite, you know, you'd have these moments of triumph, but. Um, well, you know, he cut 50 sides, which I find. He must have been had some level of su- success to cut that many sides, but none of them really paid off, as you said. Yeah, none of them ever charted. But yeah, definitely, it's a sign that that they didn't they didn't put people in the studio that often unless there was something going on. So he was clearly a local draw in New York, and like I said, he had that Alley Alley jingle, right, which was a hit, um, even though the the Alley Alley Blues version of it wasn't wasn't. Uh, a hit the same way but so you know it was enough to keep him going and keep him at this but by the time he's hitting his, his early 30s and he records a song called heartlessly for dawn records in 1955 and that one is getting um some love from the great dj alan freed it's getting played a lot and then it gets picked up by rca but then suddenly and just as suddenly it gets killed by RCA and no longer available, no longer getting played on the radio. And he realized at that point that he was never going to make it as a singer. And he felt that somebody had found out that he was a crippled 30 year old Jewish guy 
and not, you know, the young black rock and roller that they thought that they were signing. And so he always he always blamed um, that. And I for, think I think that's probably true. I mean, my yeah. guess is. Yeah, it, it's 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 it makes perfect record business sense. I mean, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, but he starts writing songs for other performers around this time. He wrote a, a song for Gatemouth Moore that was on national records. He's also writing for Laverne Baker and Lil Green on Atlantic. His dream was to be a recording artist for Atlantic. He, he recognized that they were the, you know, I mean, he's seeing things like his buddy Jimmy Scott on Savoy just being treated terribly. He's been on Apollo and seen how they treated him, you know. And if Apollo ripped off Mahalia Jackson, just imagine how they're treating, <laughs> you know, Jerome Felder. And I don't want to slander Apollo too much. They weren't any worse than, than the average, although Savoy was worse than the average. But Atlantic was the record he wanted to be on. And, and, one, and then one of these just – the Doc Palmer story is just full of these – classic moments of synchronicity and let's take a quick break from our sponsor and we'll come back we'll we'll tell the lucky break that helped him get in the door at atlantic records hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes she loves them now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. And so one day Doc was hanging out at Atlantic Records, trying to get him to sign him as an artist yet again. And he happens to poke his head in the door just as Big Joe Turner is trying to tell Ahmet Erdogan and Jerry Wexler about this incredible white blues singer on crutches that he had seen the night before. Doc pokes his head in the door and Joe Turner is like, that's him. That's the kid. That's the kid. And so... I just can't imagine it. I mean, meeting your hero like that, just as he's telling a story about having been impressed with you. I mean, that's um, that's some karma right there. And 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 in no time at all, Doc is writing songs for Joe Turner, and some of them do pretty well. So in love, uh, boogie woogie country girl. He also writes a song called Chains of Love that's officially credited to Ahmet Erdogan under a pseudonym, but the story is that Ahmet Erdogan bought that from Doc for 25 bucks, which is... When Doc was down on his luck, yeah. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing that happened all the time, you know, in the music industry, but, you know, Doc just took it kind of the way Keith Richards took getting ripped off by Alan Klein, is, you know, that's just part of the education, and right. Ahmet, Ahmet did me a lot of favors, so, you know, not, uh, not going to be too burned about that and probably his biggest hit as a solo songwriter was lonely avenue by ray, ray charles which went to number six r&b and so you know he's he's getting his foot in the door as a songwriter but most of these songs are straight blues and they're a little bit as the 50s advance they're becoming more and more dated and this is around the time he meets two people that dramatically transform his life. I've already talked a little bit about Mort Schumann, who was introduced. Uh, Doc had a younger cousin, Nasha, who met this kid that just reminded her of Doc. 
and and I love the way Halberstadt describes him as a, uh, you know, uh, what, what was it, pot smoking Jewish Bohemians, um, <laughs> but the, the you know more well, is go ahead. He was enthusiastic. I mean, that's what I really got out of it was that, I mean, the way he played piano and just threw himself into it. I can see how something like that would be really appealing to work with. And he brought that youthful energy and understanding of rock and roll that Doc didn't have. So perfect fit. Yeah, absolutely. And much like the other, so many of the great real building songwriters are teams. And much like those teams, you know, Doc tended to be the lyrics guy and Mort tended to be the music guy, just like Gary Goffin was exclusively the lyrics guy and Carol King was was the was the melody uh, gal um you know and there are various iterations on that Jeff Berry and Ellie Greenwich would both write both lyrics and melodies but somebody like uh you know um Greenfield and Sadaka Sadaka would write all the melodies and Greenfield would write all the lyrics so Mort and and Doc found their their system and and Mort is kind of like George Harrison following John Lennon around when they first meet. You know, he's just in love with Doc. <laughs> good, 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 good point. <laughs> and thinks he's the coolest guy and is following him around. And Doc immediately figures out, you know, I bet I can use this kid and, and initially pays him 10% of his songwriting just to watch. Right. And, and then eventually Mort starts contributing and pretty soon it's a it's a 60-40 deal and then I think a 50-50 deal. But meanwhile, he meets another person. He meets Willie Burke, who's the classic proverbial corndog from Indiana who wants to make it on Broadway. <laughs> Tell us how, how those two connected. Well, Doc was living in a hotel at the time, and he liked to sit in the lobby. He loved connecting with people and um, being the center of attention, being a uh, uh, raconteur, telling stories. And I think that's... I think that's part of his disability identity in that realizing that um, in many ways his life was limited because of his disability, um, he had to find some skills to be able to connect with people. And so to be this kind of um, bigger than life person is an identity that probably was basic to him, but that because of his disability, he did more so than he might have otherwise. And um, Willie was uh, also in that same hotel. Um, she was working in a department store, but uh, going out to um, auditions all the time on Broadway. And um, she liked hearing him, and he started writing him, writing her poems and slipping them under her door. And uh, little by little, they got closer and closer and eventually got married, I think, in, was it 55? Um, yeah, I, I think it was 56, 56 yeah. I want to say. And he, he yeah. actually proposed to her on the phone while she was home for Christmas. And, and she was pretty shocked and taken aback. I think by that point, she realized that he had a romantic interest in it. But it was really the fact that her mother disapproved so much, not just that he was a New York songwriter, but that he was crippled and Jewish. Jewish, right. And, and uh, Willie, to her credit, was like, that's it. <laughs> you know, she, she wasn't sure what she thought of the initial proposal, but when her mom disapproved so strongly, she said, she called Doc right back and said, yes, I will marry you. And um, then there's a great story of their honeymoon where they, they're uh, traveling, I think in the Catskills or the Adirondacks, one of those New York mountainous areas and, and uh, stop at a, at a diner and, hear a song on the jukebox and it's a song that doc had co-written with lieber and stoller called young blood and it was on a coasters it was the b-side of searching by the coasters and he's excited immediately because it's at a jukebox in a white diner so he knows it's a pop hit it's not just in the r&b ghetto oh, this right. is the big time and he immediately gets uh, some quarters and calls jerry wexler at atlantic and uh, and was like, hey, Jerry, I just heard uh, Youngblood on the jukebox. And Jerry's like, I guess you want some money, don't you, Doc? <laughs> right. <laughs> and and that was, you know, I think the figures vary. It's either fifteen hundred or twenty five hundred, but that was basically a year's income at the time. And that right, that was twenty seven thousand in today's dollars. And yeah, I mean, a nice payday. And 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 just again, 
you know, good karma for Doc and just another lucky break. And and that allowed him to finance his beginning partnership with Mort Schumann. Because if you listen to their early stuff, they were not putting out Save the Last Dance for me right out the gate. No, I mean, no. <laughs> they, they matured a lot in their writing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they definitely put in their apprenticeship and um, the uh, and they Otis Blackwell, who'd been who's the legendary songwriter behind Don't Be Cruel and Breathless and a whole lot of shaking going on. He uh, was friends with Doc and he introduced Doc to the gang at uh, Hill and Range, the Aberbach brothers, and the guy named Paul Case, who was actually the manager there. And they signed they took a chance on Doc and Morty and signed him for a regular salary. And uh, Hill this and after, Range were huge. Yeah, massive. They published Elvis. And, you know, even though Elvis wasn't a songwriter, if you wanted to write songs for Elvis, you had to publish for for Hill and Range. And people like Otis Blackwell were on staff there. And so they were, you know, there were two Brill buildings at this time. There was 1619, which is the official Brill building. And that was the older building where companies like Hill and Range were. And then there was 1650 Broadway, where the younger Real building songwriters were where people like Don Kirshner's Alden Music were. So Doc and Morty are uh, on the establishment side there at 1619 uh, Broadway. And, and uh, you know, pretty quickly at the top. And I, I found it interesting that their uh, first hits are for Fabian. That uh, They do I'm a Man, which makes the top 30, and then Turn Me Loose, which makes number nine. And, you know, Fabian gets no respect these days right and steph's telling me uh, it's time to cue so let me cue up and then we'll we'll come back and this is a song they wrote for elvis presley suspicion every time you hold me i'm still not certain that you care oh you keep on saying you really Speak the same words to someone else when I'm not there. Suspicion torments my heart. Suspicion keeps us apart. Suspicion, why torture me? That was Elvis Presley's Suspicion, written by Thomas and Schumann, and not a hit. This was never released as a single for Elvis, but a couple years later, Terry Stafford released it, and it becomes a number three hit. And I think it's one of the definitive uh, Thomas and Schumann songs. Right. Um, and anyway, but they get their start with Fabian, and this uh, Fabian's part of this whole crew of Philadelphia rockers, who, you know, a lot of rock fans don't even want to give him that name. I mean, he's right in there with Frankie Avalon and um, Jay and the Americans. Yeah, Jay and the Americans. Dion, yeah. Yeah, Dion. Dion gets a little more cred than others, but right. but Fabian was just a sweet kid who was literally discovered uh, sitting on the porch, I think at a funeral. And, uh, you know, the, the record guy saw how pretty he was and, and how the girls were, were you know, falling all over themselves around him. And it turns out he was a really nice kid. He couldn't sing very well, but he didn't have any illusions about <laughs> that. And uh, ended up, uh, you know, being the ticket to, to, to the, you know, uh, charts for Doc and, and Morty. And, 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 you know, once they figured out how to write hit songs for Fabian and others, then they were off and running. And in a pretty short period of time, they're writing Save the Last Dance for Me. And I guess we got to tell the story of Save the Last Dance for Me. You want to handle Before that Before we do, oh, go um, ahead. I think one of the things that I found really key was um, originally, um, why Must I Be a Teenager in Love, which was a huge hit for Dion. Um, it was, I'm glad to be a teenager in love, and Doc changed it to make it a much more grown-up song. And that's something about Doc. He had Morty, who was helping him be attractive to teenagers, but at the same time, he was writing as an adult. And I think that's what gives his music writing heft. So to transition to uh save the last dance for me which uh i find just fascinating the story goes that um two or three years after doc got married he was going through a closet and he found a stack of unused wedding invitations and 
um, I don't know, around here when we have a stack of uh, uh, things like that, we use them for writing notes and that kind of thing. So immediately uh, he's, you know, this is good scratch paper. But looking at the wedding invitation, it reminded him of his wedding day and his brother dancing with his wife, his able-bodied brother dancing with his able-bodied wife. And being a songwriter, he started taking some notes. And the things that he's, the opening is, you can dance every dance with the guy who gives you the eye. And Doc has this enormous power to write those things that are most scary for all of us. I mean, to be in a relationship, I mean, there's a part of us that it sometimes gets scared that we'll lose that partner, that somebody else will come along and just sweep them up and take them away, no matter how unlikely that is. But Doc would write about that. And I think that's what part of what saved the last dance, why it, it, it became such a huge, huge, huge hit was that he was willing to express that kind of vulnerability. Yeah. But then go ahead. He says he reminds the woman, don't forget in whose arms you're going to be. And this is self-confidence that in the, for a disabled guy in the late 50s, early 60s, to have that kind of confidence. First of all, the balls, as you said, to write you know, about that vulnerability, and then to have the confidence to say, don't forget in whose arms you're going to be, is just amazing. And then he opens it up in the most incredibly sweet way. So save the last dance for me. I mean, it's just, it's this, you know, in three minutes, it's this huge story that I think at the core of it comes from the disability experience and the willingness to confront that experience and write it in a way that then is universal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not everybody is handicapped and can't dance with their wife, but every one can be cuckolded or cheated on and right it's just an absolute you know that fear that vulnerability we all are going to die alone and and doc, <laughs> you know really gets it and the story in the in the aka doc Thomas movie when ben e king tells the story of singing that song and realizing immediately because ben e king was a sensitive kid i mean he was an artist and he loved Doc, and he immediately realized the context of that song and and could barely hold himself together to sing it, but he did. And you know, the 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 results speak for themselves. It's just it's just one of those incredibly powerful moments. And it kicks off this run, like I said, where they had, you know, 13 hits in the chart in one year. Uh, Doc is making, I think, 25 grand a year, uh, which would be like a quarter million dollars a year at this point. He buys a house in Long Island that was swimming pool. They are having these parties and the creme de la creme of the rock and roll world are coming out and his wife's beginning to have a successful career on Broadway. So the Broadway uh, stars are coming out and, and, you know, I mean, Doc is definitely living this high life and they're writing songs uh, like Little Sister, which they re originally wrote for Bobby Darren. And uh, couldn't pull with, it off. Yeah. Yeah. Along with Maurice, the name is latest flame, and and it wasn't working for Liberty Records had flown him out to L.A. to write songs, and and none of their rockers could handle those. And Elvis gets a hold of him. They'd already done Mess of Blues for Elvis, and Elvis gets a hold of him and just gets obsessed and turns him into these masterpieces. And we we should also tell the story of of uh, Doc and Morty. At one point during their Fabian run, they had multiple versions of one of their songs on the English charts. And Jack Good, who uh, was kind of the Dick Clark of British rock and roll, um, flew him over. And and they were just faded as celebrities. And they were on TV shows and there were newspaper articles about them. I think there might have even been a crowd waiting for him at the airport. So 
they had a totally different experience. Because even in New York, even in his own uh, fancy house by the swimming pool, the Broadway people would kind of look down their noses at him. It's oh, absolutely. Guy. And Doc didn't – he was embarrassed by being a rock and roll uh, songwriter. He thought it was really, you know, something to be embarrassed about. And, and yeah, and so getting to go to, to England and be celebrated like this was this right. absolute – Peak experience, and that's when they met Lamar Fike, who was part of the Memphis Mafia and and was one of the people that could bring Elvis songs. And he got they got Mess of Blues to him, and you know the rest is history. And pretty soon they're basically Elvis's top songwriting team uh, in in the '60s, and and just have this great run. But like everything, you know, it comes to an end. And by the mid '60s, Doc is spending more and more time in the city. It's being it's just inconvenient for for Willie to drive him back and forth from Long Island uh, to the city, and he's got to be at the Brill Building for work. And so he moves back into a hotel. They're still together, but he's spending more and more time at this hotel. And meanwhile, more well, she's on the road too. I mean, she her yeah. career's taken off. Exactly. And so, you know, they're just kind of drifting apart. And meanwhile, Mort Schumann is is young and and, you know, very successful and is just taking to it, uh, you know, and, and is has already had a bad marriage, which causes Doc's brother. He hires Doc's brother, Raul, to be his lawyer, which kicks off a chain of circumstances. And Raul Felder becomes like the top divorce lawyer in New York for the next two decades. Right, right. <laughs> but, but meanwhile, Morty's traveling more and more and, and drifting away. And so let's hear our last song. And this is from Doc's last period as a major songwriter in the 80s. This is when he co-wrote with uh, Dr. John. This is B.B. King doing There Must Be a Better World Somewhere. Just what am I fighting for? But I always lose the war I keep right on stumbling And there's no man's land out here But I know And that was B.B. King's Grammy Award-winning performance of Doc Palmas's and Dr. John's There Must Be a Better World Somewhere. And and so, uh, you know, that's the 80s comeback. But there's a long down period, and he uh, ends up – he's got a protege um, – his name I'm blanking on. I want to say Scott Freeman, who's who's pushing him on on his wheelchair. Uh, they're just going out for the evening, seeing some of the city, and he hits a hits a crack on the sidewalk. Doc's thrown from his wheelchair, tears all the ligaments in both knees. Need multiple people to help, you know, get very obese Doc back into his chair, and uh, Freeman ends up being the father of. Um, Stephen Merritt of the Magnetic Field. So uh, songwriting was in the blood in that family as well. Freeman did a couple albums that, that never hit. But in Doc's story, he's just this kind of unfortunate uh, vector for this spot of bad luck. And Doc's in the hospital, and he it turns out both of his parents are in the hospital, and he didn't know it. They He coincidentally the runs The same into, hospital, right? Yeah, they're all three in the same hospital. And... Um, Mort, he, he gets on the phone with Mort and, and he tries to talk Mort into talking to Willie, his wife, into staying with him. And instead, Mort and Willie have dinner together and both decide to leave Doc. And so and around the same time, he realizes he's never paid any taxes on all that money he made. And so he suddenly broke, divorced and has lost his songwriting partner and the Bob Dylan Beatles era has kicked in and the Brill building couldn't be any colder. And right. so he had to spend, you know, many years getting back on his feet and he ends up becoming a professional gambler. Yet another just <laughs> I was so where did that come from exactly? <laughs> you know, but he's so he's he's sort of vaguely affiliated with the Genovese family and he's hosting, you know, uh, uh, illegal gambling parties in his apartment. And makes it through uh, the 60s and 70s that way. And then when Elvis dies, he thinks, that's it. You know, I'm done. Nobody's ever going to care about my music again. But within months, he realizes he was completely wrong. The Elvis boom that's kicked off by his death starts the royalty checks coming back in, sometimes bigger than ever. And um, he he's already started writing again with other songwriting partners, Um 
Kenny Hirsch, and he had a few numbers. They did There's Always One More Time, which Ray Charles would sing on an Easter Seals telethon. But nothing had really clicked until suddenly Doc's doing well enough that he can quit the gambling, and he's out and about, man about town, and he gets hooked up with Dr. John, and they form a songwriting partnership. One night he sees Willie DeVille, and his band Mink DeVille, they form a, a songwriting partnership and spends the last decade and a half of his life basically being celebrated. I mean, people like Lou right. Reed are stopping by his house uh, just to soak up the atmosphere. And young songwriters like Joan Osborne and Sean Colvin are taking songwriting lessons uh, and, and sitting on his lap and kissing him. I mean, it's just uh, it's just crazy. Had a good run of luck there at the end. Well, I think that I mean, you've mentioned karma and luck. I think that a lot of it, I mean, one of the things your podcast has taught me is the importance of luck in so many people's uh, careers. And Doc had a lot of good luck, and he took advantage of it just about every time. The only time that he didn't was when Elvis called him up, and it was the one time that he got to talk to Elvis, and he thought somebody was pranking him, and so he hung up the phone. But other than that, it seems like Every time luck came by, he grabbed it with both hands. Yeah, absolutely. Reminds me of Neil Young a lot. Uh, I think. Um, yeah. Somebody said that about Neil Young that you know when he when he sees a break, he takes it, and and Doc definitely did. And and then another well-known disabled uh, artist. Yeah, that's right. Neil and, Young. Yeah, epilepsy and um, and father of profoundly dis disabled right. children as well. Um. You know, and Doc then becomes kind of a do-gooder. He 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 gets back in touch with Big Joe Turner and realizes that you know Joe's being overworked and underpaid, and he actually helps track down uh, where Joe's royalties have been going to an ex-wife improperly, and gets him uh, I think a five-figure payout. And uh, meanwhile, he reconnects with little Jimmy Scott, who had gone to Cleveland, and and Jimmy Scott really suffered. I mean the Lubitsch at, at Savoy Records, there were multiple times when people like Ray Charles, and I can't remember who else, there were two records produced, albums produced on Jimmy Scott in the 60s, and both times Savoy Records blocked it and said, no, you Ouch. can't do that. I've got you under contract. And and Jimmy ended up going back to Cleveland, and Doc couldn't find him, and he was looking for him, and he's tracking the Cleveland phone book. And then finally track, just stumbles across him singing in New Jersey and you know sees the listing, gets out there, reconnects with them and spends years trying to get anybody to sign little Jimmy Scott. Well, that Even letter that he wrote to uh billboard. Yeah. Billboard. Yeah. Saying, you, you know, don't wait till this guy dies. You record him now. And it, nothing happened. Not, not a thing until doc passes away. He's struck with lung cancer. And, um, and this is something I want to ask you about your take on it. Cause in the, the Halberstadt book, this is my second reading of it. I thought it was really well crafted. And at the end of the book, he tells three stories. First, he tells the story of how Doc tells his daughter about this vivid dream he had where it's a big room and all his friends are saying the nicest things about him. And later on, after he passes away, she realizes that he was telling her word for word the things that people like Lou Reed and and uh, Dr. John would say at his funeral. And then the second thing that Halberstadt mentions is that his last words were thank you. And sweet. Yeah. And then the final thing was that little Jimmy Scott gets signed to Sire Records yeah. after singing at Doc's funeral. And Halberstadt phrases that as Doc had one last thing to do. And uh Forgive me for giving, getting for for Clint. I just wanted to, to get your take. Is, was that too sappy? Did he lay it on too thick? Or <laughs> Well, I think he laid it on too thick, but I think it's fine. I'm, in the beginning of the book, he really laid it on too thick and also throughout the book about how tough it was to have a disability. And I was thinking that section where he talks about Doc having to strap his legs into uh, full-leg braces. I did that for 20 years, and it was a whole lot less work. I was thinking about it, the women 
women's wear in the 50s, you know, where women wore girdles and a bra and slips and stockings. I mean, all this stuff. There was more work to get on than my braces were. You know, it's <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> so Halberstadt, he has an outsider's view of disability. You know, he thinks, oh, it's horrible. Well, it's not horrible to live with a disability. The human experience is to adapt. I mean, look at the people in the Ukraine right now adapting. Yeah. You know, when you get a disability, most of the time, you adjust and make the best of it. Some people are more successful at it than others. And that's where I don't think he laid it on. Well, he laid it on too thick. But I don't think it was bad at the end when Halberstadt talks about the those three things. Because yeah. Doc was successful in taking this experience and turning it into something marvelous. Yeah, he really did. I mean, and, and I... I when I was rereading it, I realized I think that that he used that narrative of of Doc's struggles to set up the happy ending. Right, right. And and the payoff's just irresistible. And and we haven't even talked about things like um, the time that Doc's daughter bumped into John Lennon in a bodega <laughs> in the Upper West Side, and introduces herself, and and John Lennon goes, "Doc, who can promise?" I love him and immediately launches in to save the last dance for me and sings Sing the, the whole, whole song, song. <laughs> and the crowds gather, you know, and I've heard stories about John Lennon in New York and when he would, sometimes he could be invisible, but when he wanted to, he could turn it on and crowds would just gather around him. And I can imagine uh, what a powerful experience that must've been for Doc's daughter. I mean, um, yeah. Well, I'm, she spent I'm, her life promoting Doc and getting AKA Doc Palmas done. I got a chance to speak to her when I was doing research on on Doc. And um, she's done a really good job, I think, of uh, keeping his name alive. She'd really wanted to have a uh, a biopic done on him. And I guess it just didn't come together. I talked to at least one director um, who was really interested, but it just, you know, it wasn't quite in his wheelhouse. Yeah, maybe after the success of the of the Elvis biopic, um, you know, it, it, oh, it, right. could it could still happen. Unfortunately, though, right now the the movie uh, is out of print, but I, I tracked some yeah. people down um, who talked to it, and one of the directors had passed away, and they let some of the the songwrites lapse. Oh, ouch! And, and so, but but they're pretty confident that they're, they're going to have it back online, back on streaming and back available on DVD. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. yeah. Very soon. Cause it's, it's an excellent movie. If you're a fan, I, I think if you're just a fan of human beings, it's, it's, it's well worth seeing. I think, uh, you know, but if you're definitely, if you're a fan of, of, of music and especially sixties music, just one of the, the most inspiring and beautiful, uh, films I've seen. And I also want to give a shout out to Ken Emerson, a uh, book about the Brill Building, which I think put Doc and Morty in context with their peers like Lieber. I thought and that was much better. Yeah, I thought it, Emerson did a really good job. Yeah, and 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 puts them in context with who they were right. competing with and, and who their peers were and how they were seen. And and um and they were basically Lieber and Stoller were the big brothers of that scene. And and definitely directly helps Doc and Morty get started. But Doc does things like introduce Don Kirshner to Neil Sedaka. So, you know, gets Alden music going and, and everything. So Doc definitely had his part in the chain. Well, Anthony, I, I got to congratulate you. You kept me from bursting into tears in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite as sentimental about this as maybe as you are. Yeah, I'm, I you should have heard my George Michael episode. I, I had a hard time with that one too. But I'm getting I'm getting weepy in my old age. But my guest has been Anthony Tesler of aboutdisability.com, and we've been discussing Lonely Avenue: The Unlikely Life and Times of Doc Palmas by Alex Halberstadt. Always Magic in the Air: The Bomb and Brilliance of the Brill Building era by Ken Emerson and AKA Doc Palmas directed by William Hector and Peter Miller. Anthony, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you, Nate. It's been a great, it's been fun. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Monday, 
Nate welcomes Joel Selvin and John Johnson to discuss the twist, the mob, and the peppermint lounge. Let it roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.